Okay, praise God. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. And then we're, we're going to read verses 12 through 30. So Daniel 3, verse 1, and then 12 through 30. And if you're joining us here in person, so glad to have you guys. The verse will be on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, then you'll see it on your screen at home. Or the passage, I should say, more than one verse. Okay, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So now we're in verse 12. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, 
I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. You are amazing. And truly, Lord God, these are things too wonderful for us, Lord, how you save those who trust in you. But Lord God, I pray and ask that you can make at least some of it clear to us so that we can know and understand your ways and how you save your heart for us, how much you love us. And yet, Lord God, the things that you put in front of us so that we may grow. So Lord God, help us to just understand these things. Thank you for this time. Thank you for those who made uh, the time to be here and those who joined online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well today we're gonna be continuing our series on faith and work, and we're picking up right where we left off in Daniel chapter three. So I've been enjoying just kind of going through chapter by chapter in this book. So we're just gonna pick up literally in the middle of this chapter. But last week, we looked at idolatry in the workplace, and the reason is because in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, set up a huge idol on a plain outside of Babylon. And it was a golden statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and Nebuchadnezzar demanded that all the citizens of Babylon come before it and worship it. And so last week, we saw how this colossal idol was inspired by a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. This dream was given by God to him in chapter 2. And this dream basically predicted the coming of God's kingdom and the end of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So it was a story. It was a story God was telling. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the great kingdoms of the earth in that region were represented by a statue this gigantic statue of different metals. And that statue got destroyed by this rock cut not by human hands, representing the kingdom of God. But it got shattered. And this statue is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar turned into an idol. So this is what we saw last week. This is where this idol came from. And when he made this statue, he was basically telling God, no. Okay, this was an amazing dream. It was a miracle how Daniel interpreted it, explained it to me. But no, my kingdom will not come to an end. So this was a defiance against God. It was a desperate attempt to maintain power and control over his destiny. And so that's what an idol is. At its core, it's always about maintaining control. It's always about defying God. And we saw this last week. But why? Why is an idol a defiance against God? Well, basically, it's because an idol is a created thing that is set up as a substitute for God. It's meant to replace God. And again, as we saw last week, it's a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. It's something that makes life worth living if we have it. But if we lose it, we want to die. And all of us, we all have things like that in our lives. And these idols can literally be anything from our children to our jobs, our careers, even the shape of our bodies. It literally can be anything. And all the blessings that we should be receiving from God, I'm talking about things like meaning, identity, security, peace, joy. Now, we have set up this creative thing and we are looking to that to receive all the things we should get from God. 
So that, in a nutshell, is what an idol is. And they're powerful. Our hearts, our hope is in these idols. And the reason is because it promises to give us what we want on demand. See, it's always about control. See, God, I, I don't know God. Okay, God does his own thing. But an idol, I can control that. And this thing can give me the things that I desperately need, the things that nourish my soul, like meaning and purpose and joy. And so it begins to trust in that. It hopes in that. And over time, these created things, again, just things in our lives, right? They become ultimate. They become ultimate. And with that much control over our hearts, they create all kinds of distortions in our lives, like Nebuchadnezzar's idol. These idols in our lives, they become huge. They become outsized. They create distortions, like outsized emotions, outsized ambitions. They create all kinds of outsized, out-of-proportion joys, out-of-proportion fears and sorrows. And so I'm not going to give all the examples again, but you know what this looks like. But this is the nature of idols. They are grotesque. They're grotesque. But they're not only grotesque, they are dangerous. And this is why the Bible repeatedly warns us against these idols in both Old and New Testaments. And the reason why they're so dangerous is because idols don't just sit there. They're not just inert, but they demand our worship. Every time you see an idol in Scripture, it's always demanding the worship of people. So Nebuchadnezzar is not out of character here. When he set up this grotesque, enormous idol, he demanded people worship it. It wasn't there to just inspire everyone. He demanded that people worship it. And idols in our lives are the same. They're always demanding our worship. They enslave our hearts. They keep asking for more. More. You need to come to me more. Trust in me more. But they never deliver. And that's why they're so wicked. That's why God in his love is repeatedly warning us against these false gods that we have set up. They demand our hearts, they demand our worship, they promise the world, and they deliver nothing. They never deliver. And besides that, they give birth to a hundred more sins in our lives, maybe thousands. The reason why is because they are underneath all of these sins. See, anytime you sin, and Martin Luther is the one who pointed this out, but anytime you break one of the nine, uh, Ten Commandments, it's always because you broke the first one. So last week I mentioned lying at work. But if you lie to your boss about some project you did to get more credit, why are you lying? In that moment, as the lie is coming out, why is that happening? Because there is an idol in your heart that you're worshiping. It's more important to you in that moment than God. For example, your boss's approval. Maybe getting a good review so you get a promotion. Whatever it may be, there is something in your heart more important than God, and that lie has come out. That's true whether you're envying, whether you're lusting, whether you have pride, there is always an idol underneath that. And so they are grotesque things in our lives that multiply sin. They cause all kinds of sins to come out of our lives. And so, even though these idols always begin in private, they're always nurtured in the privacy of our hearts, they always end up going public. Why? Because sins affect people around us. See, if all this sin is starting to get birth out of your life is multiplying, you can't keep that a secret. Eventually, it will affect your marriage, your children, your family, your church, your community, your school, whatever you're a part of, it affects everything. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's idol. He dreamt it in his heart, on his bed, in his bedroom, and then one day, it pops out as a gigantic statue, enslaving the entire empire. It affected everyone. And so idolatry always goes public. The idols always go public. 
So idols are extremely dangerous. They are pervasive. And idolatry was the sin of the Israelites in the Old Testament. If you're to study, what, what was it about the Israelites? Why were they in so much trouble? What caused them to stumble so much? It was idolatry. That was the sin. And nothing changed. When you go to the New Testament, it is now the sin of humanity. Why is the world the way it looks? It's because of idols. And if an idol becomes big enough, like Nebuchadnezzar's, they will even cause people to kill. They will cause people to kill. And this is how you get people killing one another on the side of a road just because they got disrespected. I remember reading that not too long ago. Two people getting into a fight because of road rage. Somebody got disrespected. One person ended up dead. Really? Someone got killed because of disrespect? Yes. And we know that's true. For that person who killed the other one, respect had become an ultimate thing. So they killed when someone touched it. And so that's the power. That's the danger of idols. So it will go public and eventually it will even kill. And so all of that is reviewed from last week. And this brings us now exactly to our passage in Daniel 3. Because this is what we're going to be looking at. The threat of Nebuchadnezzar's idol to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because this is what idols do. So Nebuchadnezzar in our passage, was filled with furious rage. Again, how can somebody be that intense? I mean, it seems almost like a cartoon, right? Like, this isn't real. No, it is real. Nebuchadnezzar is very typical. His idol was that big, and people had touched it. They had messed with this, so he was that mad. And so here he is now, filled with rage, about to kill these three young Jewish men who worked for him. These were employees. He was about to just wipe them out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But why? Well, the reason why is because they would not bow. They refused to acknowledge his idol and to worship the idol. So Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, was about to throw them into this fiery furnace. And brothers and sisters, I wish this was just a good story. I I wish it it was just like an Aesop's fable to teach us some good lessons. But this is far too real to dismiss it as just a fable. It is far too real. It actually did happen. This is a historical story. But in fact, it actually is happening even today. And the reason is because we live in a culture and time where idols dominate. They are everywhere. And they fill our workplaces and our society. And with each passing year, they grow stronger and stronger. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But we live in a culture that is dominated by idols. And they are demanding our worship. And for those of us who refuse to bow... Because of our love for Christ, we're going to face the furnace. It might not be a literal furnace. I don't think anyone here is going to pay with our actual lives. Hopefully not. But it will be just as hot and just as threatening nonetheless. We will face the furnace. So how should we face these furnaces that will inevitably come as we try to live faithfully in our culture, in our society? How should we face these furnaces? Well, the Bible tells us how through the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the Bible never leaves us alone on our own. And when you look at their story, when you look at their experience, we can learn how we can face our own furnaces in our lives by looking at how they were brought before their furnace and the way they responded to that as they were brought before the furnace. And then what happened to them as they walked 
in the furnace. They were thrown in and then they walked in the furnace and then finally they were delivered through the furnace. And as you see all of that, we can see how we can respond. Okay, how can we face our furnaces? So first, they were brought before the furnace. So look at verse 12 through 15. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't care about your idol. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that they be brought before him. So they brought these men before the king. And then Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, and here he is trying to be a good boss, right? He's trying to give them a chance. If you are ready to hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you hear the music and you fall down and worship the image, then well and good. Everything's fine. All's forgiven. See, I'm a good king. I'm a gracious king. It's all forgiven. But if you do not worship, and again, idols always demand worship, right? If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Very interesting question. Who's going to deliver you? Who, what God? Who God? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought before this furnace because they refused to bow before the idol. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the first time your faith goes public will most likely be when everyone at your work and your school and your community is bowing to an idol. I mentioned that last week at the very end. But it's not going to be when you're going to be like shouting Bible verses at work. Hey, everyone, I'm here. You know, here's my favorite verse today. That's not when your faith goes public. It's not when you start condemning the actions of the people around you at work. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. I mean, maybe. But more likely, your faith will go public for the first time when everyone all around you is bowing to an idol and you do not. Calmly and quietly, you say, I cannot do that. That is not ultimate. That is not my God. And in that moment, it's going to get real very fast. It'll be awkward. It'll be the first time your faith goes public. And in the past, maybe even like 10, 15 years ago, there wouldn't be much backlash, not much consequence, right? Not much would happen. They'll just kind of look at you as a little bit weird. But all of that's changing. You know, recently I read a very interesting article. I've been talking about it with my wife, so she might kind of be like, oh, no, not this article again. <laughs> but it's an article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Very interesting. Written by um, a person who runs a think tank. His name is Aaron Wren. But basically this article is on how the world has changed for evangelical Christians in America over the last 50, 60 years. So this is talking about us. This is talking about our experience. So I would pay attention. It's very insightful. But this person, Aaron Wren, he's talking about these changes over the last 50 or 60 years for evangelical Christians in America, and these changes have been significant, and they're very real. And he describes these changes in terms of three different worlds that we are passing through, three different worlds. And he calls it positive world, neutral world, and the negative world. So what are these worlds? Well, the first one is positive world. Okay, this was the world, basically, in America from the founding of the country hundreds of years ago all the way up to 1994, roughly. And what Wren meant by positive world is the way Christians were seen. 
the way the culture around in America saw Christians. But he says society at large retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. See, this seems unimaginable to us, but there was a time, even when I was growing up, where it was actually good to be known to be a Christian. It was actually beneficial to you. So if you went and applied for a job and one person was a Christian and they were active at church, like an elder or something, and the other one wasn't, they would hire the elder. It was actually a positive to be a Christian in our country. I know that seems unbelievable now. That shows you what a different world it is. But this was the norm. And the Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society. So Christians believed in loving God and loving others. They believed in the Ten Commandments. And by and large, society in America agreed. Yeah, that's morality. That's the good life. That's the way to live a good life. And violating these norms could bring negative consequences. And so that was in our culture. And so this was positive world from the beginning of our country all the way to roughly 1994. And then according to Wren, and he studies politics, he studies you know, economics and society, but he said roughly right around when the Cold War, America was in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. Some of you guys, I have to explain all this, but, but they were, you know, we were in this war. It's called the Cold War because we didn't actually fight each other with weapons. Okay, we just kind of stared at each other. We didn't like each other. It was a cold war with the Soviet. I got to explain everything now. I, I just can't take anything for granted. They're like, what's cold war? I don't know. But the cold war with the Soviet Union roughly ended around that time. And when that ended, the world opened up and it became more and more pluralistic. And a lot of different people with different religions and views poured in. So positive world came to an end. And during positive world, I'll just mention this. But we had a unique strategy. Christians had a unique strategy in reaching the culture, reaching people. But one was political action, moral majority. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that, but there was this huge block of Christians that had a lot of political influence back in the 80s and 90s. It was called the moral majority. It started really in the 70s and then 80s and 90s. And they saw political action as their strategy. Another strategy you guys are more familiar with is seeker-sensitive church. That's when it started. It really started in the 70s with Bill Hybels, really took off in the 80s and 90s with Rick Warren, but these are the leaders of the seeker-sensitive church. See, even that term alone shows you that it was a positive world at that time. Why? Because they just assumed, oh, there are people seeking a church. They want to go to church. They just haven't found one yet, one that's cool, that, one that sings songs that they could relate to. So they're seekers, but they just haven't found the right church. So that was the strategy, the seeker-sensitive church. But then that all changed around the 90s. And then Wren says, then we entered into neutral world. This is from 94 to roughly 2014. And in this world, and a lot of you guys grew up in this world, society started having a neutral stance towards Christians. It wasn't positive anymore. If you told people you're a Christian, they just kind of look at you going, all right, I'm not, but whatever. Okay, you can have a seat at the table. This is a pluralistic society, right? There's a Muslim here, a Jew here, you're a Christian, I'm an atheist. Okay, whatever, right? Your thing is your thing, just keep it private and I'll do my thing. So that's neutral world. Christianity no longer had a privileged status. It was, dis, it was not being disfavored, but it wasn't exactly favored either. And being publicly known as a Christian was neither positive nor negative. It was just a pluralistic place. America, a melting pot. And during this time, this is where a totally different strategy began to emerge. This is where I really began to, you know, do ministry. And so I'm, I'm kind of 
personally, uh, you know, favoring this method, I guess, I feel close to this method, but the cultural engagement method. Tim Keller and people like him, this is the strategy that they began to promote. We're let's engage the culture, let's engage them at the, the level of ideas and let the best ideas rise to the surface. And Christianity began to move from the suburbs to the, inner, to the cities and Christians began to go from less educated to more educated and it was a totally different world. But even that neutral world then began to pass away very recently. Right around the time, according to Wren, when gay marriage was legalized throughout our entire nation, Christianity took a serious shift in its PR, in its public opinion with everyone. And then the next world, this next world, the negative world, really began to come into focus during the election of Trump, when Trump got elected, and a lot of evangelicals were backing him. It got magnified even more with COVID and all the craziness with COVID. And then now with the ongoing controversies with things like transgender movements and all these agendas that are being pushed, we are in a different world, brothers and sisters. You need to realize that. It is a significantly changed world. Rand calls it negative world. So now for the first time in this country, this is all new, brothers and sisters. This isn't something that I went through many times. No, this is brand new. But for the first time in our society in America, to be known as a Christian is negative. It's negative. I know some of you guys are thinking, well, I experienced that even years ago. Yeah, it was growing, but not at this wide scale level. But it is clearly now negative. Being known as a Christian has a negative social status attached to it. And Christian morality is expressly rejected. It is seen as a threat to the public good. So there's a new public order. There's a new public morality. And it is not what Christians believe. It is actually opposite to that. And for you to profess to be a Christian and to hold on to these views, you will be maligned. It's going to be seen as very, very bad. And more and more, there will be negative consequences. You know, even in my own life, I've seen this. But I remember years and years ago, maybe like 15 years ago when I was starting out in ministry, people would ask, oh, Roy, uh, like, like what are you, you going to do, right? What, what's your career going to be? And I'm like, oh, I want to be a pastor. They would kind of look at me a little weird, right? But nobody would attack me. Nobody would say anything negative. Just kind of puzzled, right? Like, why? What is that, right? But more recently, and I, and I didn't, I don't think I made this up in my mind, but I remember somebody asked me, like, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian pastor. And they literally flinched. <laughs> I saw them take, like, a step back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> right? But just even the mention of me being a Christian pastor, people flinch. So I've seen that in my own life. It's negative. It's a negative world. Now, I'm not here to be a doomsayer. I'm not here to say, oh, the world's coming to an end. No, the, the church is going to continue. God's kingdom will triumph but it's clearly a different world we live in now. And all of this happened very, very recently. That's the point. Just back in 2014, 2016. And so people have very differing ideas on how to reach people in this new world. And there is no clear strategy yet. Because there are some you know, discussions, some different talks, but there's no clear strategy. But here's what people do agree on though. They all agree that in negative world, it will be harder to be faithful to Christ in public. It will be very hard. Because it's clearly negative to be a Christian in our society. Especially in places like the workplace. And many of you already feel it. That's why you hide it. 
I, I can't really be vocal about my faith. I, I don't even really want people to know that. Because you already know it. It's negative. It's a negative. And people also agree that the consequences for standing up for Christ will be more frequent and maybe even more severe. Again, I'm not a doomsayer. Most of it will be just kind of social ostracization. Probably nothing more than that at this point. But eventually it might be more. So what does this all mean? It means we're all going to be facing furnaces. See, this isn't just a story in the Bible. It's not just a parable. But this is real. So we will all face furnaces. They probably won't be literal furnaces, but they will still be hot. They will be threatening. So here's the first truth that will help us as we are brought before the furnaces. This is the first thing we need to understand. Suffering is something we will all face. Everyone experiences suffering. See, this is true even before we enter negative world, but all the more now. We are now in a negative world. And by the way, this is nothing new because the early church began and grew in negative world. Amen? Far more negative than even anything we see right now. But the early church was birthed and grew in a negative world. And this is why Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. I'm not here to sugarcoat anything. And then shortly after that, Peter and Paul, they emphasized the same truth. They started to carry that truth along in their letters. But it said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Paul said that. If you want to live a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12-14, through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what was Peter saying there? He's saying fire trials are coming. Don't be surprised. They're coming. So now, how do we apply this to our workplace? Well, the way we apply it is very simple. We shouldn't expect persecution and suffering when you go to work. So tomorrow morning, I'm not saying expect it. Don't be looking over your shoulder, right? I mean, that's not how you should go to work. There's no reason to go into work each day thinking that someone's going to attack you. But if it does happen, we shouldn't be surprised. See, that's the application. You should not be surprised one bit. It should actually be assumed that eventually this might happen. And people in the West, especially Americans, do not have this mindset. Probably more than any other group on the face of this planet, they struggle with this. Because Americans, in contrast to almost every other culture in the world, people in the West see suffering as an unexpected intruder. intruder. It is always an unexpected intruder. And the reason why is because in our culture, people see the goal of life as very different from back in Jesus' day or even throughout most of history. But people in America and in the West see the goal of life as mainly being happy. And what is that happiness? What does that entail? No suffering, right? Many of you, that's the goal in life. I just want to be happy, whatever that might look like. Lots of money, I'm happy. Yeah, I find that girl or that guy to marry me, I'm happy. I have a bunch of kids and I'm raising them, I'm happy. Whatever that is, but there's no suffering. And that's the goal for countless Americans in our culture. That is the goal. And so the moment suffering comes in, what is it? Intruder. Eliminate, eliminate, minimize, minimize, right? That, that's the only perspective you have on suffering. 
My goal in life is happiness with no suffering. And the moment suffering comes, eliminate, eliminate, minimize, minimize. And for people who have that mindset, they will have a much harder time with suffering. Okay, not less. They're not going to have less struggle. They're going to have more, more. It's kind of like taking that exam that you did not expect to take, that you weren't even really thinking about, and then suddenly you walk into class and boom, here's an exam today. <laughs> Are you going to have an easier time or a harder time? You'll have a far harder time, right? A much harder time than the person who knew long before that there was an exam coming and they thought about it. It brought them stress. Yes, it's stressful, but when it finally came, they were prepared. That person has a far easier time dealing with it. Right? Very simple. So no one should be surprised by the furnaces that we're going to face, especially in this negative world. And we should never be surprised by the hardships and difficulties especially in the workplace, especially as people begin to bow down to these idols, whether it's the idol of wokeness or transgenderism or some false notion of justice. Christians believe in justice, but there's this false notion, whatever it may be, right? Or just worldliness, greed, pride, and they're bowing to that and you say no. And we shouldn't be surprised that something is going to start coming towards us. We will be brought before furnaces. Again, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's the first truth we must understand. But here's something else we need to understand. We need to understand the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. As they were brought before the furnace, what kind of a faith did they have? Look at verse 15 through 18. It's incredible. But it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is amazing. These are just teenagers. Maybe there were 20 Young Jewish men. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a faith that did not say, do your worst, Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to save us. We know it, right? Definitely God's going to save us. That's not the faith they had. Neither did they have this kind of faith. God might save us, but we can't be for sure, right? We don't know God's will, so we need this backup plan. No, that wasn't their faith either. But rather, they said, O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. So right there, their faith acknowledged what? God's omnipotence. God is greater than all the gods of Babylon. That's what the idol represented, all the gods of Babylon, all the, the values and the things they worshipped. Our God is greater than all the gods of Babylon, so he is able to deliver us. And then they said, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So not only did they acknowledge his omnipotence, but they acknowledged his willingness to save. We believe our God cares for us. He loves us. So he's willing to save. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then listen. Then they said, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did you hear that? But if not, so what are they acknowledging there? God's sovereignty. But God, 
who we believe loves us and cares for us, who is all-powerful, can deliver us, but he has a right to do whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. So even if he doesn't, O king, because of his infinite wisdom, for whatever purposes he has, we're still not going to bow. So do you see their faith? What kind of a faith is this? This is truly amazing. Well, Bible scholars have pointed out, this was a faith not in some abstract will of God that they're trying to imagine, right? Oh, God's will is this, so, you know, I think God's going to save us. That's not the faith they had. Nor was it a faith in a gift of God or a blessing of God. Oh, God will bless me with this. I, I trust that he gives these kinds of gifts. It wasn't that kind of faith either. Then what kind of faith was it? It was a faith in God himself. It was a faith in God himself and who he is. See, people, they might look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as like these kind of radical believers. You know, they had this extreme faith. No matter whatever the cost was, they're going to believe. But that's not true. This is the faith that all Christians should have. Namely, the faith in God himself. In who he is. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Most Christians don't have that kind of faith. They say they believe in God, but what they really are saying is, I have Faith in what God will do for me. That's what I really believe. God's going to do X, Y, Z. If I go to church, read my Bible, pray every day, then God's going to, you know, make things go well at work. When I pray to him, he'll probably answer my prayer. And if he doesn't, then I don't know. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to come back and do it right again. And God will do X, Y, Z for me. That's what they really believe. They're not believing in God himself. God will do X, Y, Z for me. Or what they really believe is, God will give me this or that. So he will either do X, Y, Z or give me A, B, C, right? He's going to give me different things. If I believe enough, if I tell him I trust him, I love him, I follow him, then he will give me all these things. And how do I know so many Christians have that kind of faith? I know because as soon as suffering comes and they don't see God doing X, Y, Z or giving them A, B, C, what happens? They lose their faith. They lose their faith. Why? Because it wasn't in God himself. It was in the things they were wanting from God, not in God himself. And as a pastor, I've seen this countless times. So many times I've met with people who are very discouraged or struggling. And basically, it's, it's always the same thing. They say, I don't know if I can trust God anymore. And when I ask why, they say, because. I was praying for this to happen. It wasn't even a big prayer. It wasn't even a big request, and it never happened. I was expecting God to do this because I go to church, I follow him, I try to obey, I try to be good, and it didn't happen, so I don't know if I could trust him anymore. And I've heard that countless times. Okay, that is not the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, that is a faith in what God will give them and what God will do for them rather than God himself. We need a God, faith in a, in a God in the God himself. <laughs> That's not good English. We need faith in God himself. Okay, we need faith in who God has revealed himself to be. Okay, everything that he is, he's already revealed when he was nailed for us upon the cross on our behalf. Already on the cross, God revealed his infinite love and grace towards us, the least deserving. Okay, he revealed who he is. He already revealed his infinite worth and glory by his sacrifice for sinners like us. He already showed us in space who he is when he let himself be tortured and nailed to the cross for people like us. Okay, that's who you are, God. And based on that, that should be enough. We should have faith in God 
Paul even said that in Romans 8. If the God who did not spare his very own son, how will he not much more give you all things? He's appealing to who God is. If God did that, if that's who he is, what, do you think he, what else do you think he'll do for you? Is he worthy of your trust? Okay, that is who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put their faith in. And so in this negative world, as we get brought before our furnaces more and more, okay, this is the faith that God desires. Are you going to have a faith in him and who he is? You know, I love the testimony of Polycarp. Polycarp, I know it, it almost sounds like a Pokemon character, right? But Polycarp, he was a church father in the second century. He was not a Pokemon. But he, he was a godly, godly church father, and he was a martyr. He was burned to death because he wouldn't bow to Caesar. The Roman authorities brought him, uh, arrested him, and took him. Uh, one day and basically said, you need to acknowledge that Caesar is God. You need to bow to him. And he said, no. And, and listen to what he said. Polycarp said, right before they lit the fire, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? Yeah, that's powerful. And then they lit the fire and he died. So 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. Hey, that's who he is because of who Jesus is. I, I can't deny him. How can you tell me to deny my Savior? Hey, that is a faith in who he is. So this is what we need when we are brought before our furnaces. We need to understand everyone will suffer. Hey, that's the first thing we need to know. It's just a part of life. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, you shouldn't expect it, but if it does happen, you shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Rather, be prepared. And second, we should understand that God requires a faith not just in what he does or gives, but in who he is. Who he is. See, we don't know what he's going to do tomorrow or what he'll give or not give. We don't know. But who he is, we do know. We know who he is. Clearly revealed to us on the cross, we know who he is. So, this is who... God is, this is what he requires. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this faith in God. Okay, they were thrown with this faith into the fiery furnace. And then the most unbelievable thing happened. Instead of burning up and dying a terrible death, they started just walking around inside the furnace. So this brings us to the second point. But Nebuchadnezzar saw them walking in the furnace. So they were brought before the furnace. They had this faith in who God is and they got thrown in and this is what happened. Daniel 3, verse 20. And Nebuchadnezzar ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's amazing. But he's filled with fiery rage and he wanted that furnace to be, you know, just as hot as his rage. And so they cranked it up and the men who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar, they were actually burned and they died. But the men who wouldn't obey, who wouldn't bow, they got thrown in. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, yes, king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So right there, I really like how it says that they were walking around in the furnace. And in scripture, the word walk is very significant. It always implies something. But I like how it didn't say that they were collapsed at the bottom of the furnace, still alive but collapsed. They weren't in despair. It doesn't say they were jumping up and down trying to get out of the furnace, trying to save themselves. But rather it says that they were just walking, calmly walking. In other words, they were moving through their suffering calmly and with purpose. I believe that's what the word walk is implying. They were moving through their suffering calmly and with purpose. And so here's the next thing we need to understand. God will not take us away from suffering, but rather he will take us through it. He will take us through it. And I know sometimes when we see suffering coming, we're before the furnace, we pray, God, please take this away. We don't want to go through it. And sometimes he might, but more often than not, and again, this is something that you just need to accept. You need to understand. God's will for you is to go through it. He won't take it away. He'll take you through it. And as he takes you through it, he will preserve you in the midst of it. Okay, that is God's will. And so God makes his promise directly to his people in Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2. But God said, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. So he's talking to his own people. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters. See, he didn't say, if you go through the waters. He says, when. You're going to go through waters, flood waters. I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, I love that. This is like literally verbatim what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I love that. But God is so clear. This is my will for my people. Is that oftentimes you're going to pray to me when you see suffering before you. Take it away, God. Please, Take it away. Take me away from this. And God will say, no, my will is that. I will take you through it. I will take you through it. So for the believer who has faith in who God is, and he clings to that God, the flames will burn and destroy everything around them, but the flames will never burn and destroy what is within them. It will never touch what is within them. God will keep them safe. This is the promise. And this is true. Even if they die physically, they are still safe. And the reason is because for the believer, death becomes just a door. You just go from abundant life in Christ to now even greater life for all eternity. But that is the path for the believer. But you go from life to even greater life. And so no matter what happens, you are safe. And I know this, this is hard to accept. This is a truth that most believers don't really believe in. I remember years ago hearing the testimony, and I struggle as well, but I, I remember hearing the testimony of this missionary. He was Australian, and he worked with um, the Hindus in India for many, many decades. And he even had his family there. He had his young children there. And then one day, these radical Hindus, they're very violent, but they surrounded the missionary and his two young boys. They were just elementary school age. They were sleeping in the car as they were in the midst of doing mission work. And then these Hindus, they poured gasoline all over the car, and they lit it on fire. And then they jammed the door shut. So they basically cooked this missionary and his two young boys alive inside the car. And later, after the fire was put out, they just found three small figures 
Okay, I'll, I'll just end there. I mean, it's graphic. I saw the pictures. And so this is very hard. I understand. Literally, they were in the fire, including children. And then the wife, and then I think, I believe they had an older sister, and now they're left all alone. But here's the testimony of Scripture, brothers and sisters. I'm, I don't want to withhold the truth from you guys. But here's the testimony. God never promises to remove us away from the fire, but he will take us through it. And even if you lose your physical life, you are safe. Because the moment that missionary and his two sons passed from this life into the eternal life, they went from this life to greater life. In a moment, they went from abundant life to eternal life. In a moment. So whether we live or die, God preserves us in the furnace. Amen? We are safe. We are safe. And so this is why God promises to preserve us through the fires and through the waters, not take us away from them. And here's why. Here's truly why God will take us through it. It's because he has a purpose for us to go through it. There's a purpose. If you're suffering through something right now, then this is very important, brothers and sisters. You need to understand that there is a purpose behind it. If you're suffering right now, there is a purpose behind it. Viktor Frankl, he's a Holocaust survivor. I've mentioned him before. But his testimony is so powerful. But he was a physician and a philosopher. He was thrown into the concentration camp during World War II by the Nazis because he was Jewish. And in that place, he suffered unimaginably. He saw unimaginable things, horrors and death. But amazingly, he survived. And later, he wrote a book about it. And in that book, he quoted another philosopher, Nietzsche. But this is what he said in that book. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. In other words, if you can find a purpose for why you're going through what you're going through, you can get through it. And this is coming from someone who went through the concentration camps. So finding purpose and meaning in your life, especially during suffering, is key to getting through it. You must find the why. Okay, why is this happening? So there is a purpose and meaning in our suffering. But we see this truth in far lesser ways all the time, don't we? Right, in far lesser ways in our lives. We, we know this is true. But let me ask, but why do so many of you who are in medicine, why do you go through the suffering of medical school and residency? Why do you put up with that? If I were you, I would just quit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like, why do you put up with that? It's like, are you crazy? 30-hour work, you don't even sleep? You're like poking people, like sleep deprived? I mean, why, why do you go through all that? Well, it's because you have a why. You know why. Or most of you do. <laughs> why do you moms, especially those who are pregnant right now, why do you endure the suffering of pregnancy and birth? Okay, why, why would you go through that? Okay, why, why would you let your body change like that and all the discomfort and all the pain that you're going to go through in childbirth and then even raising that child? Why? Well, it's because there's a purpose. You know the purpose. Okay, all of you who are in school, why do you go through the challenges and trials of school? Okay, studying and taking exams and you know, living this kind of like raggedy life. <laughs> why, why do you go through that? Well, it's because you have a why. So it's no different when we suffer in our lives. Okay, if you know the why, you can go through anything. And Christianity offers clear and real reasons why God allows suffering in our lives. See, Christianity has rich resources for you to get through suffering. In contrast, our modern secular culture offers none. It offers nothing. And the reason is because in our culture, the secular culture, there is no God. There's no rhyme or reason to the universe. Everything is just matter and energy. 
So whatever happens to you is just coincidence, just an accident. If you suffer, oh well, just get over it. Minimize, eliminate, and just move on. So that's all they can offer. So whatever ultimate purpose there could possibly be for your suffering, we don't know. And if you're going to find any meaning, then you're on your own. You need to find your own. And that's a heavy burden to bear for those who are suffering. I need to figure out my own purpose, my own reason. But see, but Christianity and God doesn't put that burden on us when we suffer. But God tells us directly what the purposes are. So listen, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is so clear. There's a purpose behind this. And here's the purpose. As you go through suffering, I'm not gonna take you away from it, but I will take you through it. Your faith, like pure gold, will get refined. And it will become more beautiful. And as your faith becomes more pure and more beautiful, when Jesus finally returns, there will be a greater level of glory and reward for you. Praise and glory and honor for you on the day of Jesus Christ. That's what it says. So this is what God is wanting for you. So what does that mean? What that means is if you had any doubt about God's love for you before you suffered and then suddenly suffering hits your life and God takes you through that, in the midst of that suffering, God is doing something. He's burning away those doubts. As you see God coming through, as you're clinging to him, as you pray and then God gives you these answers, sometimes they're small like a trail of breadcrumbs in your suffering. But he's answering you, he's working with you, he's talking to you. And all those doubts get burned away. If you had a faith in God before you suffered and it was a faith in what God gives and what he might or might not do rather than who he is, then as God takes you through suffering, that misaligned faith, it gets burned away. It's no longer about what God gives or doesn't give. Because everything's gone, right? I'm suffering, everything's gone. And yet God is still showing me his love. He's still showing me that he's with me. See, it becomes who he is. It gets burned away. And this is not a straight line. It's not as easy as that. But when gold gets melted down, sometimes the gold itself looks almost destroyed. I've seen that on YouTube. (laughs) But as they begin to melt it down, you start seeing the gold almost evaporating. It looks like it's disappearing, and yet it doesn't. Because as the impurities go away, slowly but surely, the gold rises back to the top, and then it forms again. And when they pull it out, it is pure. So it's never a straight line, but there may be times when you're suffering where even your faith looks like it's getting destroyed. I don't even know if I could trust God anymore, yet God is still with you. He is working in you. You know, I saw this literally happen with my brother, and this is his story, so I can't go into details. But I know growing up that he had a level of faith in God. It was kind of shallow. He kind of went to church here and there with me. But then as he entered young adult life, he went through intense struggle and trials. Some of it wasn't his doing, it was brought onto him. Some of it was his own doing. But he went through a lot of difficulty, a lot of trials. And during that time, I remember, it almost looked like he had become an atheist. It almost looked like his faith was destroyed. He even challenged God at one time. I was right there next to him, and he's like, God! He said a swear word, I won't say it. But he's like, God, you know, blank. And he's like, show yourself. If you're real, show yourself. And God, in response to that prayer, even a prayer like that, God showed himself. God appeared to him 
in a retreat one time. God met him powerfully. And then later, he went to a missions in Mexico, and then God met him powerfully at an orphanage in Mexico. So again, this is his story to tell. But that faith that looked almost destroyed, it came back like that gold. It began to bubble back to the surface, and all those impurities, they began to burn away. And I'm here to testify, brothers and sisters, my brother, my actual biological brother, he is a man of God now. Even recently, he had this job situation that didn't quite work out, and I was so encouraged the way he talked, but he's like, Roy, it's okay. God's faithful. Like, that's, what he, that's what he said to me. Literally, this thing that he was hoping in, he was, it didn't work out, and he's like, God's faithful. It's okay. He'll bring something better. He said that. He'll bring something better. I, I know God. And so how does somebody get to that place? It was through all that trial. It started to just refine, burn away those things. So these are the things we need to understand when we're in the furnace. God's will is to take you through the suffering, not take you away from it. And while you're in the furnace, you will be walking. Again, that's a picture of calmness and purpose. You will be walking through your suffering. Why? Because he's leading you with a purpose. There's a why. Again, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And his why is he is refining your faith like pure gold. He is growing your trust in him. He is also growing your wisdom and compassion for others. Okay, people who's never, who have never suffered, they're, they're, they're actually, they actually become dumb. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to you know, use that as a, as a slur, but, but people, I mean, this is why people are weird and they're, they're, they're so disconnected and shallow. They've never really gone through anything. But as you go through things, as God is working upon your heart, you grow in wisdom and compassion. Oh, you're going through that? I've been through stuff. Let's talk. You understand. So all of this happens in the fires of the furnace. But there's one more thing we need to understand. So, so these are important things, right? But there's one more thing we need to understand if we're gonna come through our suffering better and stronger. And here's the final thing. He is with us in the furnace. He is with us. Go back to Isaiah 43, one and two. It's so clear. Or verse two. God said, when you pass through the waters, I will what? Be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God says to his people, when you go through suffering, and you will, I will be with you. And this brings us to the final point. God will deliver us through the furnace. He himself will be there, and he will deliver us through the furnace. Daniel 3.25. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not heard. And the appearance of the fourth is like a sun of the gods. So here, the Bible is so interesting. I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar himself knew who this was. But without even realizing, I believe the Spirit of God was inspiring his words. And Daniel recorded it. But when he said a son of the gods, that word gods is actually Elohim. So it's the son of Elohim. Elohim is the, Jewish, uh, the word for a god in the Old Testament, the one true god. So Nebuchadnezzar said, he looks like a son of Elohim. And then a little later in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar, after they came out, he answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. And there again, I believe Nebuchadnezzar had no idea who this was, but inspired by the Spirit, moved by the Spirit, he actually identified the right person. This is the angel of the Lord. 
And in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was not like Gabriel or Michael who came as a messenger and they spoke on behalf of God. But the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, whenever he appeared, spoke as God. The angel of the Lord would never say, oh, I have a message from God. He would just say, this is my message. So whether it was to Joshua or to Gideon or whoever, he would just speak. And so this is, I believe, the same angel, the angel of the Lord. So who is this angel? This is Jesus Christ. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The one who would one day come here and be the son of Elohim. The one who was the angel of the Lord repeatedly throughout the Old Testament who finally appears now here. He has one of us. This was Jesus. Jesus was there in the furnace. And he wasn't merely there. But again, Nebuchadnezzar, so much truth is coming out of his lips. But after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was rescued out of the furnace, this is what he said. But he said, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And it's so true. But there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. And again, Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what he was saying, but this is what he really meant. But there is no God, there is no God on earth, there is no God among any other religion who actually climbs into the furnace with us, actually enters into the flames and walks with us, and through his very own willingness to suffer, rescues us. There is no God like that. That is the testimony of scripture right here, out of a pagan king's mouth. What God is like that? See, every other religion, how do you get saved? How do, how do the gods of the other religions save us or save you? By you following their demands, right? You making the sacrifices you need to make, you following the rules that they made for you, and you need to perform, you need to achieve a certain level of obedience, and then they will rescue you, right? You need to do favors. A lot of the Greek gods were like that, the Roman gods. You have to do favors for these gods and convince them to save you. And for people who worship a God like that, when they face suffering, what happens? If it's all based on you, right? You need, to, you need to perform in a certain way, do certain works to be saved. Then when people like that begin to suffer, there are only two things that are gonna happen. Your hope is gonna get crushed in that God. Why? I'm doing all this, right? I've, I've done the favors. I followed the rules. Why am I suffering, right? You're hoping that God will get crushed. Or what's going to happen? You're hoping yourself gets crushed. Why? Because I'm doing all this. And by the way, a lot of Christians, they worship the one true God in this way, as if he's a pagan God. I'm, I'm doing, don't, God, don't you see all this stuff? I mean, forget it, God. Forget it, right? I've heard so many Christians, forget it. I go to church continuously, forget it. I'm not going to go anymore. You can't even answer this prayer for me, God? So whether they're hoping God is crushed or they're hoping themselves is crushed, they're gonna end up in despair. But no, Nebuchadnezzar said, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. What way? The true God climbs into our suffering. He, in fact, suffered even greater sufferings than us. Because ultimately, as theologians have pointed out for decades and millennia, Jesus went into a furnace that was far hotter and far more deadly than any furnace we're gonna face. Because whatever furnace we face is gonna be momentary, light. At most, we're gonna lose our physical life, but the furnace that he went into, he lost his relationship with God the Father. And he was punished with God's wrath for all the sins of the entire world, all of our sins. Nobody, nobody here experienced that, that level of 
suffering. And yet Jesus did. He took the entire wrath of the holy God upon himself. And so now, because he climbed into that furnace, much hotter than any furnace we will face, we can now get through ours. Praise God, amen? We can get through ours. And even if we don't get through ours in the way we want, at the timing we want, right, it lasts longer than we think, it's okay, right? Because your hope in God is not gonna get crushed. Why? Because you know what God did for you. How can your hope in that God get crushed? God, you climbed into that furnace for me. How can I give up on you? You never gave up on me. Nor will your hope in yourself get crushed. Why would you despair about what you're doing or not doing? It's not even about you. Your salvation isn't based on your works or your performance. It's about what he did for you. So as you're suffering and it's taking longer, it's not unfolding the way you thought, you're not gonna despair about what you're doing and not doing. You're just gonna maintain your focus on him. It's not even about me, God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, they did nothing. This fourth person, the son of Elohim, climbed in there and protected them, brought them through. So there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. And brothers and sisters, I know a lot of times sermons, they're just a lot of words, but these are not just words. I pray that the day when your furnace comes, and it will come, that this will be a living truth for you, amen? Okay, let's come before the Lord, let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord. You are awesome and you are holy. And truly, there is no other God like you who saves in this way. Lord, what God in all of human history says to us, I am holy and I must judge you. My wrath must come upon you. But instead of it coming upon you, I will pour it out upon myself. I mean, what God is there like that? Instead of throwing you into the furnace, I will climb in. I will throw myself in. What God is like that? And that is how you saved us. That is how you saved us. So Lord God, thank you so much, Father. We just worship you. We just come before you, Lord. And, and Father God, today, Lord, as we um, take communion, Lord, I pray that you would reveal once again, Lord, the glory of your salvation. Lord, yes, we can go on and on about now we live in a negative world and things have changed, but Lord God, we're not afraid. And it could and very well get far more negative than what we see now, but we're not afraid. Because Lord God, you've already told us well in advance your will for our lives, everything we will face, and everything you've done to bring us through. So Lord God, Thank you. We worship you. We love you. So let's just come before him. Let's come before the living God. I know we didn't talk very much about actual workplace dynamics today, but all of this applies to work. 
whatever suffering, whatever trial you face at work, all of this applies. The faith you're going to have as you face that trial, your understanding that this is not unusual, the purpose why God would bring this into your life, why He's taking you through it, and then finally, what God promises to do in the midst of that trial. He, he will be with you. He has climbed into the furnace with you. So let's just come before the Lord. Let, let's praise Him. Let's ask Him for more faith and understanding. And then we're going to take communion.